Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 6, 2014, and before we get started, I want to encourage you again to send me your favorite episodes of 2013. Send me an email at mail at econtalk.org with the word favorites in the subject line. List five favorites. You can find all the 2013 episodes listed in chronological order by going to econtalk.org. And in the left-hand margin of the page, you'll see archives, and you can choose date, and that will list them all. That will actually list all 400-plus episodes of Econ Talk. Uh, they're all available online, uh, despite the fact that some of them are when I was a, I hope, less skilled uh, interviewer. But they're all up there, going back to 2006. My guest today is Lawrence Kotlikoff. He is a William Fairfield Warren professor and professor of economics at Boston University, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the Econometric Society, a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and president of Economic Security Planning, a company specializing in financial planning software. Larry, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me, Russ. Now, you've been writing for some time about America's fiscal problems. Uh, a lot of people disagree about how serious those problems are. You argue that they're serious. How bad is it? Uh, I think it's uh, terrible. I think we're probably in worse fiscal shape than any developed country. The, the reason, Russ, is that we're, we've been uh, piling up debts for over six, six decades. And when I say we, I'm referring to both Republican and Democratic administrations and Congresses. And we've been hiding them. We've been keeping them off the books. We've been using uh, economic labels, words, to uh, pretend that they're not real liabilities of the government. Uh, to give you an example, take the uh, Social Security checks that your mother might be collecting right now. My mom's 94. She gets a monthly check. There's no way that uh, anybody's going to take her check away. This is a uh, payment that the fe- that's coming from the federal government. It comes in the form of a treasury check, a check from the treasury, which is a color uh, yellow and green. And it looks just like the checks that come from the treasury that are called principal plus interest payments on official government debt. But only the checks that are called uh, principal plus interest payments on treasury debt are being uh, reported in terms of their value in the present, their present value as being an official, uh, as being an, a liability of the government. So we have all these obligations to uh, something like 30, 30 to 40 million current retirees and close to 80 million uh, baby boomers who are about to start collecting their social security benefits if they haven't already. All those obligations are not reported as part of the government's debt. So we're, we're missing those off the book obligations. The accounting here is uh, much worse, far worse than anything that Bernie Madoff, who ran that big pension uh, Ponzi scheme, engaged in, and anything that Enron engaged in. It's really horrendous because the true debts of the country total about $205 trillion. The official debt that's being reported uh, is only about $12 trillion. It's in, in the hands of the public, the debt uh, in the hands of the public. So uh, we're, we're missing uh, the vast majority of the obligations. And this $205 trillion fiscal gap, which is what economists refer to this as, which is the all the liabilities to paying my mom's Social Security benefits, your grandmother's Social Security benefits, et cetera, all the Medicare, Medicaid, other uh, spending obligations, defense spending, paying for the president's lunch, those are all obligations. They're going to have to be paid. And then if we net out all the future taxes that are going to be coming in as projected in both cases by the Congressional Budget Office, we see in present value, the value in the present of this uh, net obligation being $205 trillion. So we're in terrible shape. That, that's, um, you know, our, our GDP, our, our, the national output that we produce is about uh, 
17 trillion, we're talking about 205 trillion, which is many times a single year's GDP. Uh, we would have to raise taxes by close to 60% immediately and permanently, every single federal tax to uh, come up with $205 trillion in present value. So the country really is bankrupt and nobody sees it because of the bookkeeping. Well, that sounds horrible, but a couple thoughts um, seem a little cheerier. One is this has been true for a long time. Uh, people – the major cause of this gap is the generosity of these promises combined with the magnitude of the number of people who are going to be owed these promises. That is the baby boomers, which would be me uh, among among those 80 million. I'm happy, by the way, to, to give mine up or to take less, uh, but most people don't feel that way, as, as you're correct to point out. Most people expect to get that money, and the government would be very hard-pressed. Politicians would be very hard-pressed not to come to keep those promises. But we've done that for a long time, haven't we? So what is – what is what's why is this – one is if, if it's really a problem, why hasn't it reared its ugly head? And in particular, if we're really bankrupt, why do people keep buying our bonds and happily at low interest rates? Okay, well, the first uh, um, question you had is, uh, you know, our issue here that you're raising is the fact that we've had this problem for a long time. It's true we've had the problem for a long time, but it's getting worse every year and, uh, and at an accelerating pace because uh, we have 78 million baby boomers who are about to collect on average about $40,000 in today's dollars when they're fully retired. So. The fiscal gap this year could easily rise by $6 trillion uh, because we're not paying it off. It's like a credit card bill, and if you don't pay it off, you have to pay interest on it. Uh, it gets bigger. If you don't pay the interest, the, what you owe is, is bigger. We're not paying the interest, let alone paying off the, the principal of this obligation. So because we're getting closer, the present value, uh, the problem is getting closer, if you put it this way. you know, I'm... 62, as I speak with you right now, I'll be collecting my social security benefits in eight years. 10 years ago, I was 52. It was a further, the problem was further off. Its value in the present 10 years ago was smaller. So because of the aging, uh, interacting with the growth of the benefit levels, particularly in healthcare, uh, inter interacting with the number of uh, baby boomers poised to collect benefits, these things are making the problem acute. We're getting very close to, um, we're, we're not bankrupt in 20 years. We're really bankrupt today. It's just like Detroit, uh, you know, they could probably get by for, for a little bit longer, maybe a couple more years. Uh, they could sell off their art museum and some other things and squeeze by. But basically, they're looking into the future and saying, gee, we can't cover all the expenditures with the revenues we're going to be getting in. So we're bankrupt and we're bankrupt right now. And if you look at uh, our situation, many, many economists have looked at it and come up with really the same answer that, that we're doing uh, phony baloney accounting and that we actually are broke uh, and that we need to get our fiscal house in order immediately. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't invest in critical things that we need to invest in, like education, infrastructure, re research and development. but. That may, you know, we may need to raise taxes, and I think we do need to raise taxes, but we also have to cut some of the spending. We have to get our health care spending in particular under control, but in a way that doesn't leave people uninsured. So we're going about trying to get – That'll be challenging as, well, as we see right now. I mean I have proposals at uh, – these are not uh, bills before Congress or anything like that, but I have proposals that I've laid out for how to fix – Healthcare and stay within 10% of GDP. I wrote a book called the, uh, uh, the the Healthcare Fix. Very simple plan. Fits on a postcard. It's been endorsed by five Nobel Prize winners and many many economists, top economists who aren't Nobel Prize winners. There's ways to fix these problems without having and still give people a, a terrific policy and not have the country go broke. But but we're not. We don't have political leaders who are willing to say, look, you've got a, uh, a system which is so screwed up, you have to basically eliminate it and start from scratch, build from scratch, rather than taking a bridge which is about to collapse and patching it up and uh, 
and then you know for sure you're going to have a disaster. It's going to collapse at some point. Better to knock it down and build a, you know, a safe one. I don't disagree with that, but let, let me try to find a uh, – make sure I've got the numbers right and what the implications are for um, other kinds of spending. The the fiscal gap, what you're calling the fiscal gap is $206 trillion approximately? Uh, $205 trillion. $205? Oh, phew. Uh, <clears throat> I thought it was $206. Um, so $205, the amount of publicly admitted debt, the, the number that gets published when, when they say what's the U.S. Uh, – excuse me, the deficit – Excuse me. The debt, the debt is you say is twelve, well, which is I I know there's a debate about how to measure that because some of it's being held quite a bit now by the Fed, but yes. So just on that point, the, yeah. Go ahead. The, the gross debt's about seventeen trillion. So the Fed has, sorry, the Treasury has borrowed about seventeen trillion cumulatively uh, from the public, but then the Fed has printed up about five trillion dollars worth of dollar bills. And got off and bought that money. They could have, in effect, they printed up five trillion dollars and handed it to the Treasury to spend, because the Treasury, you know, takes uh, when it issues debt, uh, it gets some. You know, if the if the head of the Treasury, uh, this guy uh, Secretary Liu, were to borrow some money from you right now, you give him. Let's say he borrows ten thousand dollars from you right now, Russ. You know, he gets the ten thousand bucks. Now he's standing there with an I, sitting there with an IOU, and then the Federal Reserve Chairman Bernanke comes and prints ten thousand bucks and buys back that IOU from uh, from you. Okay, so you're sitting there with you had the ten thousand, you give it to Lou, to the Treasury Secretary. Now you're sitting here with an IOU, a government bond. Bernanke hands you ten thousand bucks and takes back the IOU. Now, if you look at this shell game, you're still at the end of the day sitting there with ten thousand bucks that you started with. The Treasury Secretary has ten thousand bucks, and the Federal Reserve has this piece of paper which they can rip up. So, what's going on here is that the Federal Reserve has just been printing money, uh, in this case and in, in general, uh, to pay the government's bills. And when countries are broke. That's what they resort to. They get their central bank just to print money, and eventually it leads to, to high inflation, if not hyperinflation. If you look at Argentina today, if you look at Zimbabwe, uh, you look at uh, countries that can't afford, afford what they're trying to spend, they resort to central bank uh, money creation. And that's what we've got going on in the U.S. right now. We've got the Federal Reserve printing not 29 cents for every dollar that's being spent by Uncle Sam the Federal Reserve is just printing 29 cents of it out of thin air. So that's another problem that we face, uh, which is very high inflation because of all the money that's being printed and all the money that the Fed will need to continue to print in order to help pay for the government's bills because the bills are out of control and the taxes are too low to cover the bills. But the optimist would respond and say, I think, two things. Um, the optimist would say – uh, there isn't any inflation. You've, we've printed $5 trillion, and look how there's been nothing, so there's nothing to worry about. Uh, and they'd also say, and this is what I want to try to get at with the numbers uh, precision, uh, if if the actual true indebtedness of the United States is $217 trillion, or excuse me, yeah, 217 or whether right. it's right. – two. Is it is it two hundred and five? Is the fiscal gap two five over the twelve or two five over the seventeen? Two two hundred five versus the uh, the twelve. Okay, so, so two hundred five is the extra amount that we that we need relative to the What's to the twelve. It includes the includes the twelve. Okay, so we really owe two hundred five, but we only publicly admit to owing twelve. So uh, I think and the other thing two hundred five, by the way, is the net number. It's net of all the future taxes to pay. It. I understand. So yeah. the optimist one one unfortunate consequence of that arithmetic, I think, is, and I'm not on this side, but uh, many are. Well, then we don't have to worry about the twelve. It's nothing. So we we should be. We're in the short run. We have to get the economy going. We need to borrow more money, and we need or print more money. Doesn't matter. We need to get the economy going. Get too many people unemployed, and what your people are worrying about about the deficit or the debt in any one year. You know, a trillion dollar addition to our debt each year, roughly in the last four years. That's nothing. It's two. Really, it's the difference between 
212 and 204, and it's forget it. That's that's a drop in that's a rounding error. What's your response to those two points, inflation and the therefore we should be spending like uh, crazy now? Economies um, are slow to adjust and recognize uh, realities, but when they do, things happen pretty quickly. So right now you have folks on Wall Street, they see these problems, but they're waiting for other people on Wall Street to see them. You know, I just spoke with a about 50 bond traders and they're asking, you know, they're very interested in, in the, you know, whether or not the government's broke and whether we're going to have inflation and what the true fiscal situation is. So I tell them about that. They have a lot of questions. Then they ask me at the end of the session, what, are, what do other bond traders think? <laughs> at what point are the other bond traders going to recognize? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> so what they're interested in is uh, making money in a pack and losing money in a pack. If you have a bond trader that loses money by himself, he loses his job. If other people lose money with him, no problem. So at some point, the entire bond market will flip and, and we will have, uh, we'll have interest rates go up and we'll have, because, and we'll have inflation take off. The, the U.S. cannot indefinitely print, um, uh, pay for these obligations with money creation. It can't print $205 trillion, okay? The money, the, the basic money supply is, which is called M1, as you know, uh, let's see, today's M1 is probably about uh, two, $2 trillion or so. It's not $200 trillion, it's not $10 trillion. Uh, so there's a limit to how much money uh, is going to be able to be printed. And it may be a few years before everybody understands it, but over time, the official deficit will start getting bigger and bigger. If you look at the Fed, at the CBO's projections of uh, um, of our fiscal affairs, which is called their alternative fiscal scenario projection, and uh, they've done their best to hide this from the public, but they put out what's called the extended budget forecast, baseline forecast, which is a complete fabrication about what they really think. And then they also have put out but rather quietly, this alternative fiscal scenario, which shows the official debt just um, as as it's currently measured, exploding through time, just exploding. And the difference between the two is that the the so-called baseline has assumptions that have never held for very long. Uh, Assumptions about cuts in payments to doctors for Medicaid and uh, Medicare and and things like that, right? That's what the difference between the baseline and the alternative. The baseline is this rosy – thing that everybody, quote, everyone agrees is not true? Uh, yes, exactly. Everybody, especially the CBO, agrees is not true, thinks is not true. But that's why they have this alternative fiscal scenario that, that shows just disaster looming. And uh, even with the baseline extended forecast, you've got a $50 trillion fiscal gap. Uh, it's, it's a quarter of the right number, but it's still um, very big. So the, you know, uh, Wall Street... Uh, somehow failed to see the crash in 87. They seem to fail to see the crash in 33. They seem to, in, in 29, sorry. Uh, in uh, 2008, they didn't see the crash. You know, the value of a Lehman Brothers stock was quite high even uh, a month or two before it went to zero. Uh, Bear Stearns stock was quite high even a week before it went down the, down the tubes to like $2 a share. The so Wall Street is not a place to look for uh, perspicacity in terms of what's coming uh, for you know honest or reasonable forecasts of what's coming. Uh, They are always behind the eight ball, as far as I can tell. And but the CBO doesn't lie. The demographics don't lie. The uh, when it more, at least the CBO doesn't lie when it comes to their alternative fiscal scenario. Uh, they're saying, look, you've got this many baby boomers, 78 million. They're going to be collecting Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security benefits. And we can reasonably say how big they are. And they're going to collect them at these dates. And then that's going to be like $3 trillion a year in today's dollars when they're fully retired. Now, that's a huge amount of money that we're not prepared. You know, we've got this. This is just like Detroit 
seeing these firemen and policemen and teachers that it owes pension payments to and ignoring the fact that that obligation is around the corner. And then they turn the corner and they can't pay those bills and they call and they declare bankruptcy. So how does the U.S. declare bankruptcy? Well, it's declaring it by printing money. It's and because that's the easiest thing to do. Uh, but but don't – so I, I agree with you, but wouldn't Ben Bernanke and other economists of stature argue – I don't agree with them, but don't they argue that, look, this is – of course, in the long run, there was going to be some problems, but we're going to grow a lot in the meanwhile. We'll have some political solutions. The main thing right now is to get the economy back to health, to get growth into three, four, four, three to 4 percent range, which would – Help CBO, reduce this problem. And the, CBO, the CBO projections already incorporate the economy getting back to full employment within a couple of years. So uh, even if you spent extra money now to get the economy back to unemployment, to full employment a little bit faster, and you could do that without, and it would pay for itself, which is the kind of Keynesian magic, which Krugman, Paul Krugman and at the, uh, on the New York Times op, uh, uh Page has been uh, been selling the kind of uh, demand side magic or voodoo economics, as I would view it. Uh, you'd still have an enormous fiscal gap. It's not like uh, these problems are going to go away. The CBO is already projecting their the economy will be back to full employment in a couple of years. So uh, it's not that you can uh, spend your way out of this problem or cut taxes out of your way out of this problem. We got what we've got is a is uh, a vast uh, populace of economists who've been well-trained, who think that people on the far right and the far left uh, who are getting so much press attention when it comes to economic policy pronouncements, and that's people like Bart Laffer who say that you can cut taxes presumably to zero and get more revenue. And you've got people like Paul Krugman who's saying you can spend as much as you want and it will have no and it will pay for itself. The economy will expand so rapidly to pay for itself. Well, you know, the vast majority of economists think this is crap. This is voodoo economics, and uh, they don't believe it. And there's no real evidence to support it. We spent a lot of money, wasted a lot of money, left much bigger bills to our kids, and it hasn't turned the economy around. Because the economy uh, really, in my view, and I'm not a you know, full-fledged macroeconomist, so others may disagree, but I think the economy is very fickle. If everybody believes there are going to be bad times, they take individual actions to make that happen. If they believe there'll be good times, they'll get that to happen. So you have Lehman Brothers fail in September 15th, 2008. It fails. And everybody in the press and the politicians start talking about the Great Depression. And the searches on Google just spike like crazy for the Great Depression. And very quickly, employers start laying off vast numbers of people. Now, if you look at it in physical terms, Lehman Brothers building didn't collapse. None of the people were killed. Nothing physical happened to the economy's productive capacity. But all these employers started hearing stories about the Great Depression and they said, I've, I'm going to have to fire my employees, my workers, before I lose my, before my customers don't show up. I want to get ahead of this problem. And over the next 19 months, eight and a half million Americans were thrown onto the streets who are workers, were, were, were laid off. There's, you know, in droves, 700,000 a month, you know, almost a million people a month were being laid off at the end of 2008. Now, that's a coordinated failure. That's coordination failure. Everybody coordinated on bad times and they made them happen. And spending more and more money to fix things, having this TARP bill that uh, Paulson put forth, $700 billion to try and save Wall Street, uh, having the Federal Reserve engage in great, uh, uh, you know, fantastic uh, and unprecedented money printing to try and save the economy. Uh, have the, the president come up with things like the clunk, you know, cash for clunkers, uh, this big stimulus bill. All this stuff may have scared the economy even more and led, kept the economy uh, in the state of, of fear 
when Roosevelt said fear is the only fear, what is it? The fear of fear is the only. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. <clears throat> we have nothing to fear but fear itself. I think that's the, the most insightful few words about the actual macro economy that anybody's ever stated. Uh, and right now the economy is doing better. It's not because of the Fed policy, I don't think, of printing a lot of money and keeping interest rates low or of this federal government's extension of unemployment benefits or what any of its spending. I think it's because people have been pessimistic a long time and it's hard to keep Americans down psychologically. And now they're they're just uh, a little more upbeat and they're turning things around. Well, I think there's something to that. When people ask me why the if the Great Depression wasn't ended by World War II, which I don't think it was, I don't think there's I think that's a very difficult case to make. And if it wasn't ended by the New Deal, which I don't think it was, they say, well, what did end it? And I always say people got tired of being depressed and pessimistic. They said, let's go invest in something. Let's take a chance. So I do think animals – that's an untestable theory though, pretty untestable. People have tried to test some aspects of it. Um, and you know, it's ironically, it's a Keynesian story to some extent. It's a story about animal spirits, and I think they do matter. We don't well, know how much is the problem, and we Keynes, don't. It's not a Keynesian story. It's a Cain story. Keynes <laughs> himself, you Good know, one. Said, yeah. up in his book, and it's kind of like the Bible. You can make of it what you want. Uh, we're, we're talking about the uh, the general theory of employment and prices. His major masterwork. It's uh, written in a way that. Um, Anybody can take anything from it, but Keynes himself rejected simple Keynesianism, crude Keynesianism of the kind that Paul Krugman is advocating. You've got people like Krugman and Larry Summers and other economists on what I would say the far left uh, here, who, um, or at least the left, who say we just need to spend more and more money to get the economy turned around. But the funny thing is they don't give you any theoretical framework for for where that's from, you know, coming from the, the standard Keynesian model is one in which prices are supposed to be uh, too high, uh, either regular retail prices or uh, for consumption goods and services or wages are being set too high. But when Lehman Brothers failed in 2008, I don't know anybody, any employers who went out and raised their prices sky high or any unions or set of workers who um, started setting their wages too high. We had, uh, and the prescription that comes from models where prices and wages are set too high is to, yes, is to spend more money or to print more money, but that's not the right description uh, or, or set of conditions that um, we're looking at. We're, we're looking at collective panic that led to uh, this recession, and they're spending more money and printing more paper uh, is not necessarily going to alleviate the panic. It may, may deepen the panic. So what President Bush should have done the, the day that after Lehman Brothers failed is to fly to New York, hold a press conference right in front of the Lehman Brothers building and say, take a look at this building. Has it fallen down? It still looks pretty, pretty solid to me. I'm going to tap on its wall and see if it's going to crumble. And look at all these people walking out of the building. Yeah, they've been fired, but they're going to go get new jobs. And if you in the country want to panic and bring the economy down and sell all your assets at uh, fire sale prices, we, the government, are going to are going to uh, buy up all those stocks and bonds that you're selling for nothing, and uh, uh, and uh, print money, and we'll get you know we'll hand you back low low paying uh, bonds, or we'll print money, and we'll make a killing in the market. So be my guest. Step right up. Well, you know, what actually did happen is that most of the people who worked at Lehman Brothers were rehired by Barclays who bought the building. Barclays didn't buy Lehman Brothers, but they. my understanding is they rented or bought the floor that Lehman Brothers was on, bought a lot of the same people. They avoided all the obligations that they didn't want to take on if they'd bought the actual company. Um, so had, had the president explain that and say, look, it's still in operation. It didn't, you know. We have a big if, – if you're worried about the banking system collapse, we've got a huge bank who can handle all your transactions. It's called the Federal Reserve. We've got the Bank of Banks. You need to use a bank, use this one, okay? But it, he didn't get it across to the public to calm the public. He left the public panicked. He said um, basically the sky is falling in and uh, the uh, – uh, 
you know, and he said this in a public way, and he panicked himself and everybody else, and so did all his uh, cabinet members, and uh, of course, President Obama, who was, well, he was a candidate at the time, was also interested in making this out to be a bad problem so that he could come in and fix it. But nobody seems to have put their finger on the problem like Roosevelt did. You would have thought, you know, if I had been the president, I would have not only gone to New York and talked about the building, but I would have taken the top thousand employees, employers, the ones who had the, had the most employees, put them in a big room, have NFL football players at, the, at each uh, doorway to keep people from leaving. I would let them leave if they really insist on leaving, but wouldn't physically kidnap them. But I made clear that I wanted them to stay. And then I would start talking to them about not firing anybody, about turning the situation around, and not only hiring back who they just fired, but hiring more people. And if they all do it, guess what? They would all have more customers, because, but they have to do it together. I would talk about collective, coordinated hiring as a policy to engage in. Yeah, that, that's called job boning, um, meaning that's you know persuasion without the use of force. It doesn't have a great history in, in political um, well, effectiveness. It had, a, it had a good history with um, when Kennedy used it with the steel companies, as you know, in the early 60s to keep prices down. And Hoover tried this to some extent, but I don't know that he was that effective or that he, we had the communication technology to try and make a sociodrama that the entire country could see. Well, we didn't have the NFL either, so they could easily get, get out of the room more easily. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Sorry about that. Uh, so let me ask you a different question. We're talking about the longer run uh, perspective, and I, and I have to – of course, the long run can come tomorrow, it, right? We can – one of your I, – if I understand you correctly, you're saying that in these kind of situations, things are fine until they're not. And then suddenly, the case of Greece being an example or other ex – many, many examples throughout history, countries, banks, institutions look okay. And then all of a sudden, they're not. They lose confidence and that process is not well understood. Right. I get I get listeners who ask me uh, – they send me emails saying, well, what's the level of debt we can run and be okay? And I, I always respond, there's no such number. It's a psychological factor. So why don't you talk about that and talk about the uh, – Reinhardt and Rogoff work, which seemed to suggest to some people that there is maybe a cutoff, which point things are really start to get uh, at least negative for growth. But is there any cutoff for uh, a precipitous fall off the off the table? Well, I think if uh, people really understood the situation, the, the fall off the table would have been uh, twenty years ago or ten years ago, or certainly today. So what you have here is opacity. The government hasn't made clear, it's intentionally not made clear for decades what the true fiscal position is. The fiscal gap that uh, thousands of economists advocate that we uh, start reporting at, at a government level, uh, that those, um, those but this, numbers... But this isn't a secret. It, not only do every, does every EconTalk listener this week know about it, but every economist knows about it. Most pundits know about it. Every politician knows about it. It's true there are people in Dubuque, Iowa who are leading normal lives because they have too many real things to do, aren't paying attention to it. I don't but, know that – I don't know. Look, the CBO uh, put out its alternative fiscal scenario, its, its uh, extended baseline forecast in October, and uh, they didn't reveal the alternative fiscal scenario until people like myself started screaming at them. Two days later, they stick it into an Excel spreadsheet. Meanwhile, the press reports that the country's fiscal policy looks pretty good. So I don't think they know about it. I don't think – I think they've intentionally – I think the government has intentionally uh, kept this information out of the public's eye. They've, uh, I prepared a fiscal gap and generational accounting analysis because – why generational accounting? Because the fiscal gap, if it's not paid for by current adults, will be left – in, into the laps, will be dumped into the laps of our kids. So Alan Auerbach and I, and uh, Jagdish Gokhale, uh, Alan's a professor at Berkeley. Um, I'm at Boston University. Gokhale is at, uh, now at Cato, but he was at the time uh, a grad student with me at Boston University. We did uh, a study in the first uh, 
full year of the Clinton administration's term on fiscal gap accounting to be included in the president's budget. And uh, that document that we worked on with OMB staff for the entire fall uh, of 93 was censored by Gene Sperling, uh, who was the uh, deputy director of the National Economic Council, two days before it was supposed to be included in the president's budget. So you tell me why that happened. Uh, now Sperling, uh, under this administration, has uh, been made uh, head of the National Economic Council. I'm not sure he still is, but he, he has been director. Uh, under George Bush, George W., uh, the Secretary O'Neill, uh, Tre Treasury Secretary O'Neill, commissioned a fiscal gap study, had a team of economists working on it for almost a year, put together the study. It was supposed to be published in the president's budget. December 7th, 2002, they fire O'Neill. Uh, Cheney, Dick Cheney, was the vice president, announced that O'Neill uh, was leaving. He didn't let the guy resign or anything. It was a very in, uh, insulting way that he fired uh, Secretary O'Neill. Anyway, two days later, the guys preparing the study find out that uh, that's not going to be in the uh, president's budget anymore. So this is two examples of censorship uh, of the truth. Uh, if you look at how Medicare Part D was introduced into uh, legislation and how Rick Foster, who was the chief actuary at uh, Medicare, how, how he was muzzled, uh, he'll tell you, There's you know, just Google it. So I'm not saying that we have a collective conspiracy of everybody in Washington to hide the truth. But we've seen enough real examples of people lying and hiding the truth uh, and censoring the, the facts to, to know that uh, the public doesn't know what's being kept in the dark. Well, I agree that the public doesn't know precisely what the numbers are, but I think there are a lot of people know that they're roughly – that they're, quote, large. But I think the other question is there are people in our profession who argue that they're, quote, no big deal. They're large, but it's okay. Well, you know, it's not a big problem. Um, those are the folks I don't understand. I don't understand these people either. I don't know if they've got kids or grandkids to worry about. Uh, uh, there are some people in the profession who think we can just print money out forever without any implications that we won't ever have inflation. Now, it could be that everybody in the world uh, for the next 200 years, once you starts wanting to use more and more dollars, and we can just print them and take back all their goods and services for uh, uh, just for, for printing money, that's that's a, a possibility. So there are extreme scenarios, but in the history of the world, we haven't seen any country be able to get by with running a fiscal policy like this. That uh, is this uh, out of control and involves this much printing of money. We've we've more more than. Uh, we're basically quadrupled, increased by a factor of roughly four, what's called the monetary base, the amount of money that the Federal Reserve prints. And most of that right now is uh, being held in the banks as reserves, but it could get loose and get into the bloodstream of the economy and start raising, leading to uh, price increases. Or people could just decide tomorrow that uh, the government's printing like money like crazy, which it is, to pay for its bills, and therefore we're going to have inflation, and therefore I'm not going to... I'm going to stop holding long-term government bonds and yep. Yep. nominal bonds, and I'm going to start turning money into a hot potato. And overnight, inflation could take off because people think inflation is going to take off. And here again, we have psychology with respect to the timing. What about in the shorter run? Uh, let's talk about the the twelve trillion that is owed in treasuries, which, if I understand it correctly, is very sh is financed in very short term ways and rolled over, which means that when interest rates do begin to rise, which of course the Fed's been diligently uh, keeping them down, at least that's the claim. Um, our interest costs in the very near future, forget two thousand and thirty or when the baby boomers are swelling in very very large numbers, uh, in very short order, we we could have some serious fiscal issues. Um, because of the just the treasuries, correct? Well, the treasury, you know, the treasury debt, which is twelve trillion, is about seventy percent of GDP. If that was our only problem, we would have not a big problem. But uh, paying off that debt over time. But we have, you know, your Medicare benefits to pay, uh, 
your neighbor's Medicaid benefits, your Social Security benefits, Obamacare could turn out to be enormously expensive. Uh, we're not organizing getting everybody health insurance in a way that uh, retain, fixes a, a total spending cap. I don't, I don't think they're bending the cost curve. <clears throat> yeah. So, no, they're not. And so this is just uh, irresponsible behavior on a part, parts of politicians of most sides who are trying to get uh, the elderly's vote. And, you know, when, when President Bush introduced Medicare Part D, which is drug insurance, prescription drug insurance for the elderly, uh, he didn't, it produced an extra $15 trillion, added $15 trillion to the fiscal gap. He didn't ask a single older person, including Warren Buffett, to pay a penny for this extra um, uh, form of social insurance. Now, I think that older people need to have insurance against prescription, you know, very high cost of paying for their medications. But I don't think that uh, the bill should be left to some poor uh, kids who are being born today or being born in 10 years. And that's kind of, that's what we're doing. So this is a, a matter, uh, a lot of people like to portray this as the right versus the left, the poor versus the rich, but it's really adults versus children. The government's been engaged for decades, both parties in take-as-you-go policies. Each generation of old people gets to take from the young people, and and the young people are uh, are told, no, don't worry, you'll get your chance to take from your kids yeah. when you're older. It's a beautiful, is, it's a beautiful social contract. Yeah, it's... Uh, I've always found it mildly offensive. Uh, compared to a true family relationship, but some people can romanticize it, and I, I, it's interesting. It's generational theft, and it's all under the rug. And we have opacity, you know, running rampant throughout the federal government in terms of its accounting, but also in the banking system. Nobody knows what any of these banks hold in terms of assets. Uh, there's no disclosure. Uh, the the fact that that uh, Bear Stearns could be worth a lot of money a week before it failed and worth nothing the day it failed, uh, or well, it didn't actually formally fail, it got bought up by Morgan's, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, the fact that it can move that quickly means that nobody had any idea whatsoever about the, at, the true assets that it held and what the value of those was. The whole thing was faith-based banking. You know, we, believe, we believe that Bear Stearns has valuable assets because Bear Stearns tells us that it has valuable assets right up to the point where everybody says, uh, well, I'm not sure about it. What I'm really not sure about is whether anybody else is sure. And I'm worried that they're going to pull their money out. So we had the hedge funds engage in a run on Bear Stearns because they thought other hedge funds were running. So bingo, that's that's the fragility of the banking system. That, uh, and that interacting with the leverage uh, per permitted the entire financial system basically to, to fall apart at a moment's notice because of the opacity. Nobody knew what those banks had. Just like if you go back to 1982 with the Tylenol scare, are you, are you familiar with that? I am. Okay, so what happened there was four bottles of Tylenol were tainted with cyanide in a couple of drugstores in Chicago, and seven people died in short order from buying these four bottles. And all around the world, we had 30 million bottles of Tylenol. And everybody decided overnight all around the world in Thailand where there were shelves, uh, you know, drugstore shelves that had Tylenol, that, that that Tylenol was tainted because what was important about those Tylenol bottles was that there were no safety seals at that point. So there was no real disclosure as to what was inside those bottles. Now, Johnson & Johnson lost $100 million. They withdrew, they threw away all that um, Tylenol, 30 million bottles they recalled, threw it away and put on safety seals and put those, that Tylenol back into the marketplace. And it's, you know, and what they did that by putting on safety seals was to disclose what was inside the bottle. More, more or less. I'll just say more or less, but I'll take your point. More or less. Not, you know, it's not 100% still, but it's higher than before. A stranger couldn't walk into a drugstore in Chicago and, and inject something into a bottle once it was on the shelf. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. And somebody inside Johnson Johnson could still try. Correct. There, there, it's an interesting point. There's an enormous amount of trust inherent in our economic system 
no matter what. Yeah, but but overnight we had the Tylenol market disappear, and it was because of four bottles. And you could, and overnight we had an entire financial system fall apart because of some rumors, really, about liar loans and no doc loans and ninja loans, which many of which were true, but we to this day don't know the extent of the fraudulent mortgages. But it doesn't take much when you have no information about what these secure banks hold to have everybody run on them. And that's what happened. And that's what needs to be fixed. We need to have a financial reform. I call it limit, limited purpose banking, which requires the banks to fully disclose everything they're holding and also to have no leverage to be fully equity financed. And this is uh, called mutual fund banking. That's uh, another term for it equity finance, mutual fund banking, but that's probably for another day. It uh, is, but it's a very interesting issue, and, and we've talked about a lot in this program. But I, I want to go back to the issue of um, the fiscal gap. L let's talk about government spending and the lack of transparency. Let me take – let me accept your point. Let's accept the point that this is um, – or actually, let's forget whether my point's true or not. It, I, I could be right. You could be right. Maybe Maybe people aren't really aware of it. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they are. We don't know. But let's suppose that at one point we do wake up either because there's more transparency or because we realize that, oh, my gosh, it really is a problem. It is – the long run is here, um, and we have a serious fiscal problem. I'd like your – I'd like two pieces of of hypo, of, of um, analysis from you. One is what do you think we ought to do in the face of the problem, and what do you think we would do? in the face of the problem if it were more widely known? Well, we need to have a fundamental structural reform of our uh, tax system, our social security system, our uh, healthcare system. So I have a series of plans. Uh, they're not yet legislation, so I'm not advocating specific bills at this point, but they're called the uh, purple plans. If listeners want to, want to go to www.thepurpleplans.org, thepurpleplans.org. They're, they're called purple because they're designed to appeal to both people on the right who are red and people on the left who are blue and mixing red and blue leads to purple. So these are very simple plans that would eliminate the fiscal gap that have produced fundamental reform of the, the tax system. I, I have a, a, a tax proposal there that uh, involves consumption taxation, but I've come up with one recently, which involves fixing up the income tax system, and that's called the common sense tax. So the commonsensetax.org is a place to go to see that proposal. So there are ways that this thing can be fixed if we leave it in the hands of the economists like you and me. You and I, uh, Russ, could fix this country within a matter of weeks in terms of if we had Complete dictatorial. Power. I'm not as optimistic as you are, but but let well, <laughs> let, but let's how screw things up. How screwed up the, the actual uh, you know institutions are in this country? They could not be more poorly designed. But but let's designed to drive us broke. But let's take the two parts that the two big big pieces of the puzzle: taxes and spending. Right. So, yeah. you know, I'm a I'm a um, I'm a classical liberal. I want a I want a much smaller government. It's easy for me to solve the problem. It make a lot of people unhappy. Uh, I'd be killed probably, or th certainly thrown out of office. But if I was a dictator, there'd probably be a coup. But it's easy for me to suggest a way to to solve this problem, which is I don't believe in public provision of of retirement benefits. I think that's infantilizing. Uh, I think people should stand on their own two feet. I think there should be charity for people who don't want to, or who can't, or who have bad luck. And so I have no problem with privately organized aid to people. Um, so I, I, But it's easy for me to describe ways the government spending could shrink dramatically. I think defense spending is way too big. I don't think there should be farm subsidies. Those are easy to describe, right? The real issue is, is there a way to make the system work under something remotely like the actual political constraints that we face? Now, yes, you and I could design a much better tax system, much more effective tax system that didn't uh, award uh, accountants and and tax lawyers and that didn't award special interest with special favors, a consumption tax. There's, a, there's, a, there's 20 that would be better than what we have now that are easy to describe, yes. But even those, it seems to me, would only raise a fairly limited amount of money relative to the amount of fiscal gap we're talking about. So ultimately, and again, liberals and conservatives disagree over this, I know, but it seems to me that that, that the promises to those baby boomers 
Uh, that's a big problem. Without the reduction in spending, either means testing Social Security and Medicare, which would be the obvious way to fix this, and I think is that's my prediction of how it will get fixed. Um, there's really no other way to do it. Do you disagree with that? Well, I, the problem is if we don't do this uh, from you know, really fix these systems fundamentally, we're going to end up with marginal tax rates that are sky high. They may not be explicit, but they're going to be implicit. Like, for example, the Obamacare um, uh, plan that's now being implemented, uh, one of its problems is that it has very large subsidies, but every dollar that you earn, you lose a lot of money in the subsidy uh, if you're in that range where you're getting a sub subsidy, I, I've seen estimates of 25 cents on the dollar. So it's like an extra 25% marginal tax that people are facing. So you can easily get people into the 60% marginal tax bracket. And if we keep raising these marginal, effective marginal taxes to 75, 80%, you'll have nobody have any interest in working. It's a to you'll be, it'll be a total mess. So what we need to do is, yeah, get control of the spending, put a limit on the growth in, in healthcare spending, that uh, give, but do it in a way that everybody has a basic plan and a healthcare plan, health insurance plan, and have an efficient tax system that uh, doesn't involve armies of lawyers and accountants to um, to screw around with it, and have a social security system that people can understand. You know, the social security system has thousands upon thousands of rules that nobody can remotely decipher. Uh, and it's got a, you know, it's completely underfunded. It's in probably worse shape by itself than Detroit is. If you look at it, it's 32% underfinanced. If you look at table 4B6 of the trustees report. So we have to figure out what, you know, both Republicans and Democrats at this point have agreed that we need a social security system. We need to force people to save and have some basic retirement income. They've all agreed effectively that we need to have Universal, universal health insurance. And there's consensus really that we shouldn't have a tax system that's crazy, but we want to have one that's progressive. Our system, I don't think, is all that progressive if you really look at it carefully. So somewhat progressive. Somewhat. So, but we, we, um, there's actually more consensus among these two sides. What's lacking is, is uh, plans for how to fix them because you've got 535 members of Congress, not a single one of them is a PhD in economics. So they've made a mess. So it's time for them to start listening to economists. Now, you say it's not going to happen. They're not going to listen to me or you. No, I said, so, I said something worse than that. I said it'd probably be better if they didn't. I, you know, I, I like you. I haven't looked at the purple plans. They sound like they might be okay. I might like them relative to some other – relative to the current situation. But there's a lot of other economists they don't like. So I'm not really confident that if they start listening to economists, they're going to listen to the right ones. And I really don't think that the economists, once they have the opportunity to steer things, are going to steer them the way their textbooks or hearts or family values or care for their children and grandchildren would have them do. That's part, that's, don't you think that's the problem? Don't you no, think I every member of Congress understands what a marginal tax rate is? Don't they think they understand that our tax system is is – is rife with complexity, and they like it that way. It's not because they don't understand it. It's good for them. I think you're understanding. I think that's an overstatement. I think that uh, most – you take the 535 members of Congress and you show them the equation for the basic – the benefit for a married person under Social Security, the mathematical equation, which has got 10 functions on the right-hand side. Some are minimum functions, some are maximum functions. They're, they're certainly not smooth functions. Uh, ones in four dimensions. They will have no idea right now, as, as we speak, of the complexity of the system that they've produced, of the fact that people can't under, remotely understand what they've put into place. No, I think that I the agree with that. degree of knowledge about what's actually they've actually done and what's actually going on is very limited, and that it's time for economists to help uh, save the country. So I have a different perspective. I think we need to prescribe solutions, not just describe the problems. And we can do it. And there is hope. Uh, and frankly, uh, you know, I realize that uh, your libertarian views aren't necessarily the same as my views about uh, what should be done. But uh, you libertarians have a fundamental problem that you uh, don't seem to, to, to get, I think, which is that you're altruistic, you care about people. Uh, and when people care about other people, we have the free 
free rider problem. Who's going to take care of those other people? You say charity, but if I care about that person who's got a broken arm laying in the street, and I know you do, I let you go out and try and help them. And then you let me go out and try and help them. And the guy stays there in the street with a broken arm. That's what we have. It's a public good taking care of that person. That's what we have. Uh, That's one explanation. That's yeah. one explanation. That's the textbook explanation. It's not the only explanation because we see lots of examples in our economy. Despite the size of government, despite the intensity, the government does lots of things crowding out private initiative. We see lots of areas where people donate and give and volunteer even though there's an incentive to free ride. And now, that means it's not as large as it would be. I certainly don't disagree with that. I certainly agree that private aid to the poor would not be as large as uh, as the government's budget for education. But that has nothing to do, fortunately, with how much education we get. Uh, we, we live in a world right now where public education is free out of pocket to every every American, and yet people donate to private charities to give scholarships to kids to get them out of those, quote, free schools because they're so horrific. They don't free ride. They free ride maybe in the amount they give. They don't give the full amount they'd give if they, they could collectivize. I know I agree with you. We do have, you know, a lot of charity and people are very kind hearted and they do go out in the street and grab that person with a broken arm, but uh, it's not a guarantee. And so I think that we have to recognize that we are going to have to have the government involved uh, pretty heavily in the economy, but it has to be done at a, you're right, a much more efficient scale and a smaller scale. So it doesn't drive us broke. And that can happen. You know, there is, there is reason to be optimistic. There's also yeah, reason bring to that on. Let's hear the optimistic part. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I, I think we we need to have a politician come forward who, uh, uh, and I think there are politicians I I've met with in in Washington who do embrace real radical reforms that uh, can uh, can fix our problems and are, are looking at plans that I propose and that others are are proposing. And taking them seriously, so uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and uh, still fighting a good fight. Well, I don't disagree with that in the sense that I do think it's possible that when things get really horrible, the normal interactions of the political parties and um, the "where's mine" impulse that everybody has, and that the political process uh, uh, tends to pamper. Right, We live in a, a world where uh, people have a temptation to live at the trough, and uh, that includes my profession, our profession, the economists who get a tremendous subsidy, in my opinion, through government. Our salaries are dramatically higher than they would be in a free market. Um, so I think we're as bad as anybody else, but maybe there would come a day where things were so horrific that people would say, maybe we need to band together and and not just say, where's mine? And that will require perhaps – it requires a change in our political incentives uh, is what I believe. It may also require a, a visionary, a, which is a very tragic uh, thing to count on because most visionaries don't turn out to be very visionary, uh, left or right. It, they always disappoint us. So to count on that visionary is going to say um, – you know, my fantasy version of it is that that visionary steps forward and says, we've got to go back to the Constitution. Government does too many things that aren't allowed by it. Uh, we've got to go back to our basic uh, – the, the values of the founders, and that's a fantasy. I, I like the fantasy, but it's probably not going to happen. I don't know if we're going to get a any other kind of visionary that would do any different in terms of improving things. I'm not sure any of them are realistic. Um, one who listens to good economists uh, is going to be uh, a very difficult president to, to stay in office, it would seem to me. Well, that may be true, but uh, I, I do think that the problem is not going to get – if we wait for everybody in the country to uh, recognize the situation will be too late. Uh, Herb Stein, who was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, under President Nixon, said that uh, things that can't go on will stop. But what he really should have said is that things that can't go on will stop too late. And it's the hour is far beyond too late. We don't have a crisis in 20 years or 30 years or 10 years, we have a crisis 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where we've got a disaster right now, and uh, we have to fix it right now. My guest today has been Larry Kotlikoff. Larry, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.